Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is made possible by Woodard Wines. Woodard Wines is an independent wine merchant that sits on the community plaza in historic downtown McMinnville. Here, novices and serious collectors can shop amongst a collection of new releases and rare and fine wines. Woodard Wines is the leading independent wine shop in the Willamette Valley, where wine lovers of all sorts can learn about up-and-coming producers and gain wine education from industry veteran and sixth-generation Oregonian Jeff Woodard. You can visit Woodard Wines and learn more at www.woodardwines.com. Gary Loomis is so much more than just a name printed on a rod. Gary has been at the core of the fishing industry for over 50 years and is still going strong. As the previous founder and owner of G. Loomis, running a successful rod company isn't new to him. And Edge, his latest company, is forging full steam ahead. I met with Gary at his home in Woodland to see if I could learn more about the man I knew so little about. His story blew me away. Most people think that when they was a kid, they used to fish. They had no clue. Um, I, I really actually used to leave Woodland sometimes in the summer, uh, 2 o'clock in the morning on my bicycle, <clears throat> ride out of town, up Salser Valley, up over the hill in the New Wacom Hill, down the other side of the New Wacom River, get there at daylight, fish till 5, I could get back by dark. That's 16 miles one way, and three of the miles I had to 
push my bike up the hill because it was too steep to go up. How old are you during all this? Uh, seven, eight. And you know? I mean, your parents just let you go. Some trailer. We never had, we never had any, any, any problem as long as I was home by dark, and I, they knew where I was going. Uh, there was not no more problem. I better get back when I'm supposed to get back. Okay. That was that was the main the main thing in our household. We had chimes in in uh, Centralia, and when that last chime rang, your foot better be on the porch. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so so I I did a, I did a lot of fishing. We had Salsa Valley and Skook and Chuck River and and uh, Black River and the New Wacom and and Chehalis River ran right down through Centralia Chehalis and. And when I was a kid, uh, around lake season, we had a house, uh, a trailer that was made out of a, an old front end of a car, back end of a car, and a railroad iron, and uh, a wooden box. And we had a big, about 500-pound wooden boat we'd put upside down on the box. I'd move that thing until it just balanced. And then I would grab it, and I'd start towards Plumber's Lake three miles away. And the, the real problem was as a half a block from the from the railroad track, which the railroad track is always a little bit of an incline and down. But if I got running from the front of my house, I could just get over the railroad tracks and down <laughs> over the other side. And I would then haul it the rest of the way to Plumber's Lake. Well, Plumber's Lake being a gravel pit, they're usually deep down. And so the road was pretty steep going down to the lake. So I'd start that trailer down. When I got going too fast, I'd angle the trailer up the bank, <laughs> slow it down, come back like this and go down and back up the bank until I could get the water, push the boat off. I'd get about a half hour's worth of fishing. My dad had come from work and he'd stop and he'd fish another half hour with me. We'd put oh, the boat cool. on the trailer and I'd do that every year for the first uh, week or two weeks of lake season. Right. I mean, I was a fanatic on fishing. I mean... Well, how old are you, Gary? I'm 74. Are you really? Just turned 74. Two days after I got this done. Yeah, so we're <laughs> That's sitting my here. Birthday present. We're in your home right now, and um, definitely not being able to move anywhere um, because you've just had a foot surgery. Yeah. Let Let me back you up then. So, you're a kid. You're fishing. What happens from there? You go to high school. Go to high school, played every sport from grade school through high school, graduated most athletic out of my senior class. What kind of sports were you playing? And the biggest flirt. <laughs> Some things just don't change. Some things don't change, you know. <laughs> uh, I suppose my number one sport was football, and uh, number two was probably gym, probably track, wrestling, gymnastics. That was probably the major. I played a little bit of baseball, a little bit of basketball, but they weren't. The other sports that I liked better was at the same time, so I had to take my pick between them. Mm-hmm. Were you still fishing during all this? Oh, yeah. Okay, so the fishing was your number one passion. Did you think... Fishing, you- and then when I got old enough to hunt. What did you say to people when they asked you when, what you wanted to be when you grew up? <laughs> this you won't hardly believe. I was, I was inducted into the IGFA Hall of Fame. And they have a little box down there that you put stuff in. And so I sent them, uh, when you graduate out of the eighth grade, Centralia, you had to do a thesis on what you thought you was going to do. Okay. And my thesis was I was going to run a fish hatchery. 
Oh, really? <laughs> you you didn't run a fish hatchery? No, I didn't run no. a fish hatchery, but I've started <laughs> quite a few of them, and I've worked in quite a few of them, and I've helped in quite a few of them, and I've kept a couple of them running that would have been shut down by now with some of the stuff that we've done in Fish First and the CCA and this type of stuff. So, but uh, it was it was so funny that uh, I just he said, "Well, send something that kind of means something to you about." what you believed you was going to do in your life. And I says, I, I guess my eighth grade thesis was probably... <laughs> so I said that to him. So. so what happened when you graduated? Did you go to college? No. Um, I had a football scholarship. and uh, But I blew this knee out uh, my, my junior year. Mm-hmm. And I got the scholarship when I was a junior. I was uh, first string right half back as a junior and a triple-A school, first time there'd ever been a, a sophomore, first-string backfield. I thought I would go on. My brother was a coach okay. and, a, and a teacher, and uh, I kind of thought that's what I'd like to do, you know. <laughs> I keep teasing my kids. My kids are all real smart. I keep teasing my kids that I was almost on, on the honor roll. And I said, I got A in wood shop, A in PE, A in wood in metal shop, A in choir, and A in, in home ec, and I flunked English. So it took me off the honor roll. Oh, is that true? <laughs> no, no, but it was close. <laughs> it was close. But, uh, no, I was never much with book. I, I do have about a fifth grade reading level and a fifth grade spelling level, but my mechanical aptitude was off the charts. So when I, my, 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 we was from a, there was poorer families in town, but we was probably on the bottom two-thirds of it, and it wasn't because of love. I had a wonderful mother and a wonderful uh, dad, and my dad worked uh, every day that, that I ever remember, and my mom also worked. She was a, a Worked in a Chinese restaurant for 16 or 17 years, and then she worked as a barmaid uh, after that. And my dad, though, he got Lou Gehrig disease. Oh. And uh, so he got sick when I was about a sophomore or junior in high school. And so most of the money that my family did have, they used to get my brother through college. Gotcha. And so when it was my turn to go to college, uh, I wasn't college. You know, I was college-type people. Why and, not? Was it the structure you didn't like? Well, no, I didn't mind even the structure. It was just that I was more of an outdoors person, do stuff with my hands. Right. I needed to make stuff and do stuff. And, you know, it didn't matter. When I was a kid, I picked blackberries. I picked raspberries. I hayed. I mowed lawns. I, you know, I did any, any of that kind of stuff. But to sit and read a book... Right. I I never forget one one story was one of my English teachers told me one time she says, Gary, if you don't read a book and give a book report, you will flunk this year's English class. So it happened to be duck season and Oh dear. This is it. And uh was blowing and wind was raining and I opened up the door got a big old quilt laid right down by the door listened to that wind and the rain out there two hours before daylight I take my dozen decoys my shotgun put it over my shoulder hop on my bike and I ride about three miles out of town put the decoys out hour before dark you can 
daylight. You could hear the birds flying through and quack, 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 and, 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 and all of their wings beating and the sun starting to get daylight. The whole world starting to come alive and, and this type of stuff. And all of a sudden here's the ducks and you shoot, you hunt until, geez, I gotta be home by end of chimes and so you load up and go home and still raining and blowing the next day. And uh, so anyway, when she got me up in front of class to give the report, I said, I, I don't have a report. Oh, you're so And naughty. she says, Gary, you know what I told you. Why didn't you read that book? So I told her just what I told you. What did Why? she say? She gave me an A. Well, uh, on what? Pre- uh, the premises is I gave a report on hunting and why I should be out hunting instead of in living in experience instead of reading somebody else's experience. I mean, I don't, I don't care about it. I mean, I don't, I shouldn't say I don't care about other people's experience, but I gotta be the, I gotta be there in the experience and so out there hunting. I remember that day a lot more than if I'd have read the book. That is a good point. It took a lot of years to figure these things out. Yeah, well, help me to figure this out. So right now in my timeline, I've got you fished a lot as a kid. Your parents understood that. Your dad fished with you. You graduated school. You played football. You got the scholarship. And then... I went in the Navy. I went up to the trade school in Tacoma which is part of the college, you know, that's part of it. I was going to be a metal shop, wood shop teacher. Mm, okay. And so I took a college to machinist course up there. And I was up there about six months uh, after graduating. And, uh, and it really got to the point of time my mom didn't have enough money to even $5 a week and $35 a month to stay in the YMCA. So I decided that I was going to go in the Navy. So I joined the Navy. And uh, took my tests in the Navy, and needless to say, I came out very high in math and a couple of the other ones, and machinist repairman was one of them, which is what I was really doing mm-hmm. in the outside world. So I go in there and, in the Navy and take all the tests, get everything ready to go, and this type of stuff. I go through boot camp. I graduate with high honors in boot camp, and I'm ready to go to MRA school. Right. And uh, all of a sudden they said, you can't be a machinist repairman. You're left-handed and colorblind. And I said, what's that got to so? do with it? He says, you can be a machinist, re- re- you can be a machinist mate. You can be a, a machinist fireman. You can be a couple of things. But you can't be a machinist repairman. Hmm. Now, the only thing that I can think of is it looks like a lathe is set up for a right-handed person. And... You have to read the end of the metals to get the color code uh, of what metal it is. So I, I I don't know if that was what it was, but it kind of seemed like that's right, what it yeah. was. So anyway, I just I just said, well, I'll just strike for machinist repairman because there's nothing else I want to do and and this type of stuff. So I was really literally two years as as compartment cleaning and mess cooking. Right. And so, uh, in doing that, my last, my first year was on, wasn't too bad a duty, I was on Kauai. Then I went into, uh, USS Vance. It's a radar picket ship. 
And uh, right off the bat, we went off of uh, ADAC and Kodiak and this type of stuff on a radar picket missiles coming in from Russia. So I was there for about a year, and then we went on a deep freeze cruise down to Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. On the way back, I was, learn- I was still mess cooking, and on the way back, I was still doing all the stuff in the machine shop, you know, repairing this pump shaft and repairing this and this type of stuff because I had pretty good training the six months I was in school and and I always, that's what I I really liked that and so one of the omens told me I didn't have to do it because I hadn't had training in fact I can't do it because I haven't had my schooling my class A schooling so one day the repair officer came by which you know in them days your repair officer your XO and your old man was God <laughs> I don't know, but I'm learning. Yeah, I'm yeah. learning. Well, let me tell you, they, when you was in the service, I mean, you, you know, they treated you with respect, and you treated them with respect. And so the repair officer came in and said he needed this pump shaft done, made, and I said, well, I'm sorry, sir, I can't make it. And they said, well, you've made shafts better than this. And I said, well, I can't make it. I was just educated by a yeoman that I haven't had a Class A school and I was supposed to be guaranteed one because I graduated out of high school and I'd passed all of everything else, so I was guaranteed a class A school, but they wouldn't give it to me because I was colorblind and left-handed. Oh. He says, well, you, 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 you're done mess cooking and compartment cleaning. Good. You, you what understand? a waste of talent. You are done. You have done your last day of that. Now, if I'll make you a deal. If you'll bake this pump shaft, and continue to work and help us in the machine shop until we hit shore, and you'll have orders to go to MRA school. Anyway, uh, we got back, uh, we got back, and, and so there was my orders. I go to MRA school. So it's a 16-week school, and I'm in school like 14 weeks. I'm number one in my class. All of a sudden, I get called over to the... Uh, main office. And I go over there and a lieutenant says, I see that uh, you're going to be three months short of two years when you graduate from, from MRA school. And I said, well, yes, I, it looks like I will be, sir. He said, well, I'm sorry, you can't graduate out of an MRA class without having two years of obligated service after you get out of class. <sighs> and I said, but sir, I was guaranteed a class A school you could have sent me to the Class A school at the very beginning, like you did most of the people. But lead to say, I had to go through the whole chain to be able to get there. And it's your fault that I'm that I don't have three months. Yeah. He said, "Well, there's nothing I can do about it." I, he says, "Go over and I'll cut you new orders." So I went back, started to pack my bag. My teacher came in. What are you doing in here, Loomis? And I, so I told him the deal. He said, you sit down on that bed and you don't move. So I sat down on my bed and <laughs> didn't move. And he was a chief petty officer, chief machine. In fact, he was a senior chief petty officer. And so a little while later he came in. He was about as white as a sheet of paper. He says, Gary, you get back to class. You drop down one grade point. You and I both may be in Borneo. Oh, my goodness. He fought for you. <laughs> so, so, so. Yes, sir. And uh, after I graduated out of there, I was number one in my class, highest score since 1954, and I was given my choice of duty stations. So I chose the USS Dixie, 
which is an AD tender. It's like a big machine, machine floating machine shop because that's what I wanted to be as a machinist. So, and it was just leaving for Westpac. So I went aboard her, and about a week later, we headed towards Japan, and, and uh, we went all through, you know, Singapore and Manila and all through there. And I was there for nine months. We came back for a few more months. I was on the Shelton when she got torpedoed with a turn of joy. And so I got out of the Navy, and I came home. And at this point, I mean, have you met Susan yet? Are you single at this point? Still single. I met my wife the last leave I was I was here. I really, really wanted kids. I wanted to get married right away. Quite early. How yeah. old were you, do you think? I was 23 and she was 17. You wanted kids at 23? Yeah. Wow, that's so young. I, no, I really had them at about 20. So anyway. So uh, you got married and you had a family. Got married, and we have to look back. We've been a tremendous team. Couldn't have done one tenth of the stuff that I that we have accomplished without her. She seems like a great woman, a really great woman. She's just absolutely unbelievable, and she won't take any of the credit for anything. But uh, I just got to tell you that without her, there'd have been no. Lima Glass, Loomis Composite, Loomis Franklin Company, G. Loomis, Edge, Steel, CCA in the Pacific Northwest, Fish First. Tell me, so what was your first, I mean, did Lima Glass come first? So we got we got married, and, and I worked down at Sherman's. It was a machine shop in town in Woodland, and we built edgers, barkers, resaws, head rigs for lumber mills. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Oh, geez. Every weekend we went fishing or hunting. We did that for uh, 10 years I worked there. Well, prior to that, about five years, or maybe six years prior to that. Well, let's go back to my first one. Yes, well, hear that one. I got out in 64. 65 was the first summer that we I was out. So somebody told me, now, at that time, really, truly all around here we had was winter steelhead fishing. And winter steelhead fishing, if you went out and fished pretty hard, if you got three in a day, that was a good day. Mm-hmm. You know, if you got one, that was a that was a good day. Yeah. But two was a pretty good day, and three was an excellent day. Well, somebody told me that there was bright steelhead in the Kalama River. This is like the 28th of May. And I said, no, there's no, there's no bright steelhead in the Kalama right now. Those are fish that are brightening up. They came up in November, December, spawned. And after they spawn, they start brightening up again as they go back towards the ocean. Mm. He said, no, he says, I think these are fresh fish. Like springers, you mean? Bright, steelhead, and clamor. Not very many people know about those. Right. Uh, but but it was a very, very small run by this time. Okay. Yeah, Why was, was it so small? Uh, mismanagement. Okay, got it. Mismanagement. you got to remember the Klamath River was really, well, it was one of the first three hatcheries, salmon hatcheries in the whole... Uh, Pacific Northwest. So they overloaded it with salmon and salmon and salmon and salmon, and they didn't, steelhead were a by, byproduct. Right, okay. And, 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 and you're right, there was a small, you know, half pound, they call them, like the ones down on the, on the rogue, and this type of stuff, the half pound. But, but, you know, to tell you the truth, probably in 10 or 15 years that I fished there, I caught maybe two of them. Yeah, okay. With very few of them. So really at that time, there wasn't a fresh run of fish. No one 
in the Kalama. Mm-hmm. So, but I thought I'd better check it out. Yeah. So I go down, and with winter steelhead gear, I caught six summer run steelhead. I gotta tell you, I've never been on heroin, but it's not as addictive as six summer run steelhead one evening. <laughs> I mean, I was on. <laughs> what were you fishing? Were you fishing spoons, bait, um, Jensen A? I was fishing bait. Winter steelhead bait was it. If yeah. you, didn't, you didn't fish bait, you didn't, you didn't stand up next to the bonfire in the evening. Okay, got you know, it. You had to have good old crusty bait eggs, <laughs> eggs on your rod. Oh, I remember. I remember okay. very well. Okay. So, so the oily, sticky yeah. waders, orange crusted fingers. Yeah. Everything tastes like borax. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 anyway, I caught I caught six. I mean, I was I, so I finished out the rest of May, all of June, all of July, all of August, till the seventh of September, and I missed three nights of fishing. Whoa, that's a mission. I got married in April. May fished. Left work at four thirty. Got on the river at 11 minutes to 5 and fished until dark. 90% of the time she was with me, sitting in the car, sitting on the gravel bank or whatever. Wow, that is dedication. Oh, yeah, and I did it in tennis shoes. And so uh, along about the latter part of July, the water, needless to say, at the very beginning, we still got a lot of glacier water melt, and then the water's kind of greenish and murky and this type of stuff. And 15-pound test maxima and, and a piece of pencil lead that long and a bait eggs that big were fine. Mm-hmm. But as that water started getting lower and clearer and more fish started coming in, now the reason, let me, let me tell you that about that, they just put in the um, John Day Dam. Ah, uh, okay. The John Day Dam had a lot of nitrogen flow off the end of the apron, and they was having dead fish below the below the apron, which they'd never had before. So they thought they was going to lose a lot of that gene pool that went up above the dam. So they took a lot of those eggs, planted them in the rivers below Bonneville, to be able to hopefully save that gene pool. That's the reason that those... And they didn't tell anybody about it. And I mean, I just stumbled onto it. You know, from this other guy telling me he saw these fish jumping in this hole. I want to tell you, I fished it all by myself, and I never seen another fisherman that hole until at least, probably first of August, I probably started seeing them. But anyway, that water started clearing up, you know, about the end of June, first of July. got like crystal clear. Well, I, can, I could tell there's more fish, I can see them, but I'm getting less bites. So I thought, well, I better drop down. I got down, I was using an eight and a half foot uh, reader rod at that time, and I finally got down around eight, and I'd get more bites, but it, you know, it was a little bit more tough. These fish was, had no respect for you whatsoever. I mean, they, they're uh, 10 hours out of salt water. So I thought, well, I need a bigger shock absorber. So I went downtown and I bought a nine foot, seven weight fly rod. And being a machinist, I drilled out the handle, and I extended it, made an extended handle on the end of it, cut off the bottom three guides, put spinning guides on it, took my spinning reel, and sanded the foot down so it would go into that fly reel seat, and now i got about a ten and a half foot weapon. 
But I go down there, and I mean, I've got to tell you, I just start cleaning up on the fish. And by August, I'm down to four-pound test, and I'm catching three times the amount of fish that all of the fishermen combined are catching. Why? Because... How? Because, first of all, I fished it every single night. Mm -hmm. I know where the fish... By this time, I know... This looks great, but there ain't no fish there. I fished it 92 times, there's no fish there. Why should I wait? The fish lay there, and there, and there. Mm -hmm. That's all, that's, that's, that's the only place they lay. So you start down here, so you don't scare those fish, and you hook this fish and land it, then you hook this fish and land it, then you hook this fish and land it. So one night I'm coming down, and there's about five guys at this one hole where I know there's always two fish. Right. So I sat there and talked to one guy that's kind of the head of it. And uh, the other guy kind of stops fishing and backs off. And I says, uh, you mind if I make a couple casts? He says, no, go ahead. So I walk out there. and I, There he is. Out of the water he comes, end over end, and this type of stuff. Well, another thing I learned, that you fight the fish, when that fish's belly hits the the, the ground... Yeah. You're going to have the same length of time from when you hooked it to when you get it there to get it there to get it on the bank. So I had to figure out how to get it from there to there quicker. So I figured that I could take that long rod and I'd pull it out like this and I'd pull the fish and I'd get the fish going. When he went by my foot like this, I'd take my foot and I'd just throw him 20 feet up in the air, out of the water, up on blank, oh my God. snap him off in midair. I was only using four-pound test. Because this is in the days when you would harvest fish. Oh, you know, yeah, this day was killing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These were all hatchery fish. Okay, great. It was all supposed to be harvested and killed anyway. And so when I was beating them off half a woodland. Right. And so I flip it up on the bank and snap off the leader. I got a whole bunch of them already tied up, you know, with yarn and everything. Baited up, walked back out. There's the second one. There he is. Now they did. And do the same thing. I grabbed the two fish. I started down the bank. And the guy says, hold it, hold it. He says, what are you doing? I said, well, I was going home. He says, no, that's not what I meant. We get off work a half hour before we know you're going to be here. Oh, wow. We come down. We thrash the hell out of this hole, knowing that there's fish in it. We may get a bite. More likely we don't. You come down, make two, three. One day it took you four casts to catch your two fish and down the river you go every night. Now, what in the hell are you doing different? Well, seeing that they was nice and they always let me, you know, fish whenever I got there and this type of stuff. And I said, well, look, you're rigging. I said, your rods are too short. Your line's too heavy. You've got too much lead on. Your bait's not right. I says... You know, you got to get a new, these, these fish are spooky, you, you know, and so I, I told him all this stuff. He says, well, where'd you get that rod? And I said, well, I made it. He says, make me one. Oh, I said, I, I don't make rods, I just fish. He said, no, no, make me one. I said, I don't make rods. This is the only rod I ever made, I don't make them. Well, sell me, sell me your rod. <laughs> I, I says, I don't sell my wife, I don't sell my kids, I don't sell my dog. I'm surely not going to sell you my fishing rod. He says, how much do you got in it? And I said, well, if I paid $35 for it, and I got about six hours in it. He says, I'll give you 100 bucks for it. Okay. Now, I, I was a journeyman machinist running in a machine shop at Sherman's. I made 97.20 take home a week. 
And he said, go give me a hundred bucks for it. I said, no, no, no. I, because I knew there was more fish down the river and I had to You want to hear? Yeah. He says, I'll give you a hundred and fifty bucks for it. I said, I said, you, you just don't understand. I don't sell my wife. I don't sell my kids. I don't sell my dog. I am not going to sell you my rod. He says, I'll give you two hundred bucks for it. I said, let me get the reel off. <laughs> God's truth. He knew it had a price. God's truth. And so I took the reel off and I gave him the rod. And I went right to Manchester's in Longview. I bought another rod, went home, took my wife's three-minute epoxy and had another rod. And I was ready to go. So that was not one of the three days I missed fishing. Got it. So I go back next day right after work. And where I usually park... There's a guy parked there leaning on the side of his car. Okay. So I pulled around the side of him and parked and got out. And he says, hey, are you the guy selling rods? Oh, I see. I, start. I said, no, no, not me. He said, no, no, no. He said, the guy that's supposed to sell rods parks right here. I said, it isn't me. Yeah, I don't he says, He says, no, don't you know Al Hellenberg? Damn. I said, yes, I know Al Hellenberg. He says, he says, you're selling rods, 200 bucks a piece. <sighs> he says, well, let me take my reel <laughs> So that, that April, honest to God, that's how I got into it. So I went down, on another rod, went home, showed my wife how to fix it. And from then on, she was building the rods, and I was selling them on the river. Oh, this is amazing. And we made more money selling rods for the next couple years as we did me being a journeyman machinist running a machine shop in Woodland. So what was your first job then in the industry away from meeting these guys on the riverbank and selling them your rods? It wasn't very long after that that instead of buying a new rod finished completed on the shelf, there was a little rod company down in town called Cascade Rod Company. Okay. And I could give you the history of that too, but but anyway, it was kind of an offspring from the rod company uh, that started Fenwick. Fenwick was actually started in Woodland. Oh, okay. People don't know that, but it was. So so anyway, I thought, well, why don't I just, if I'm going to tear the rod apart and everything else, why don't I just buy the planks and, you know, glue the handle on it? Yeah, glue, it makes way more yeah, sense. Yeah, it makes way more sense. So I went down there, and, and uh, the guy that was running, his name was John Siebertson, and Asked me if I could look around. He said, yeah, go ahead. So I looked around. I came back out. He said, what can I do for you? I said, I'd like to buy some blanks and some components. He said, well, you have a business license. I got a business license. No. He says, well, I can't sell to you because you're a consumer and I'm a manufacturer and da-da-da-da-da. I said, well, you know, as I was looking around, I seen one job you was doing out there. You're making a lot of these little two-piece, five-foot, solid fiberglass Rods, he says, Yeah, we make 50,000 a month for Zebco. And I said, Well, I see you've got about three or four or five women gluing the ferrules on them. How many do they do a day? He says, They do about 300 a day. And I said, What if I could build your machine and a woman could do a thousand a day? He says, If you could do something like that, how much would that cost? And I says, Oh, about $285 worth of blanks, guides, real seats, all of the stuff that he wasn't going to be able to sell me. Right. He says, if you can build a machine that'll do a thousand a day 
you'll, you'll never have to worry about buying any components anyplace else in the world. Well, machine didn't build a thousand a day, it built three thousand a day. What? <laughs> yeah. And so, anyway, the, uh, the, the company, I never get the company after he showed it to the company, Zebco. Zebco, so that'll never work. You, you know, you, you, the, you, you fractured the blank. Said, what do you mean? What I was doing, instead of gluing on, I crimped them on. I built a machine that they'd stick it in like that, and then it'd come down and crimp them. And so the crimp would hold them not to come off instead of the glue. So they was really on their solid because it was solid fiberglass. Jeez. Nothing in the world stronger than solid fiberglass. So anyway, he's all never, never worked, never worked. Well, anyway, I took the rod and I bent it down like this. Then as soon as I switched handle, boom, as I told you it wouldn't work. And we pulled it up and looked at it. Blank never broke. The guy, the ferrule broke in half. Ah. <laughs> and, and anyway, so he was pretty impressed, and that's what they did. And so for about five years, I built all kind of flow coders and all kinds of machinery for them. And it ended up being the rod company that Lima Glass bought. Okay. For their, for their side of the rod company. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Lima Glass was in Kent, Washington. That's right. where the blanks were built. They were just doing a, a buyout. By probably halfway through, they were doing a buyout of this Cascade Rod Company. And it was still called Cascade Rod Company at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I just started to, to, to make parts for them. And so anyway, about two years later, they offered me a job to go to work for him. As a full-time employee? Full-time employee. Well, Jesus, I mean, I was foreman here at that time. I had my own keys to the shop. I mean, I could build this kind of stuff that I wanted to build. I go fishing every night. You know. They said, well, would you at least take one day off and come up and take a look at the plant? Mm -hmm. So I did. I went up to the plant and camped. And I walked through that plant. I got through that plant they talked to me all the way up about the blank, tubular blank companies in, in, in the world and all the way back and, mm-hmm. and all of this type of stuff and what I saw. And I told John, I said, John, you, you, you've got a sleeping giant here. He says, I know, but I've got nobody on your end of what I need to do. I can do this end, but I can't do that end. So they finally made me a deal that I couldn't afford to refuse. And I quit and I went to work for them. Okay, how long did that last for? Five years. Was Lamaglass the big player back in the day? Or was you know, it was it was so much bigger than I thought. How many people were working there? Well, let's see, we had probably twenty five people working there. We had reps throughout the United States. Uh, we was Ten times bigger on the East Coast than we were on the West Coast. Oh, really? Now, Lima Glass was somebody, I mean, a, a good company on the West Coast. It was the oldest, you know, it's about maybe, it, it's the oldest continuous company in the fishing rod business today. Lima Glass. In Lima Glass is. Yeah, they, it's, it started in tubular, in tubular glass. Yeah, yeah, I did not. Yeah, uh, well, they started clear back in the 50s. Okay. So, and that's where Fenwick got their knowledge. That's where I got my knowledge. That's where a lot of these people have come along, have got it from breaking off from, from Lima glass. Well, when did you break off from Lima glass? So I went to work on 73 and left in 78. 
And was there any reason in particular why you broke off? Yeah. You want that? Only if you're willing to share. Well, I don't mind sharing it, but uh, um, me and John Severson really ran Lima Glass the first three years, four years. Uh, the owners of the company really kind of got ownership of the company kind of accidentally. They were Lima Glass's reps. And they also had Judd Bailey and company and their big, their big product was Zebco. So they were selling Zebco, but they was also repping Lima Glass's planks. They, they also had a deal with them to buy all of the seconds. What do and you mean by seconds? Second, just one maybe has a little bend in it or a little twist in it or, um, they ran it on the wrong manvil, so it's really not a certain particular model that we have. Uh, two inches of the tip broke off, so it's really a different model. Had trouble pulling it, it's a little short. You know, so imperfect. But still, imperfect. Still make a good, a good, a good rod, a fishing rod, but, but it wasn't a model that they would have in their catalog, so it was really no place to sell it other than a second. Right. And so they were buying them for 25 cents a piece, and a dollar and a quarter. So they was really, truly making more money on selling Lima Glass's seconds than they were being their rep. Well, Lima Glass never made a whole lot of money uh, in those years before us. Right. It was 18 years old when I went to work there. Oh, wow, okay. So they never made a lot of money, but they kind of accrued the the rep commissions. Well, then when it got to the point of time that I got there... And I was there one full year before graphite came in. Okay. And so I had just about got glass up and running, got the bugs out, got the blanks running, got the machinery up to stage. That was really my big plus is the machinery would break down about every other week or every week. And then the girls would go home and they'd find a new job because they wanted to work six days, you know, or five days. And so I finally got the machinery going. And then we got right down to the very end of it and, and, went to the Sampy Show. The Sampy Show was always in Chicago. It was always in the summer when it was hot as hell. They never had air conditioning on the first day, so all you did is sweat. And we didn't have a booth. We just was kind of showed in our hotel room. Lava lasted? Lava lasted. Wow. This, yeah. is, this was before we had a booth or anything. Long they didn't even have a catalog until I put a catalog together. So uh, we go we go there, and, and I show, you know, some of our fiberglass blanks and stuff like that. Then I get out and I start walking the deal. One of the booths I get to is Fenwick's. And I walk in Fenwick's booth and there's a deal like this that says, Rods of the Future. So I pick them up and I shake. There was a pass rod, a fly rod, and a steelhead rod. How are they Rods of the Future? Graphite. Ah, the graphite is here. Graphite. It was the first one to bring out graphite rods. When I should, you know, if anything, I'm a good fisherman, you know, and being a good fisherman, that's why I can build such good rods because I know what kind of a tool we need for it. Mm-hmm. You can't, unless you have a good race car driver that knows what's failing, the tires are slipping at this speed, at this degree of an angle, how to set the car up to be able to hold more, more ground and, and you know, you, you gotta have that before you have anything. Well, fishermen, so when I pick these rods up, I just about Poop my pants in a good way. Oh yes, they, they were they were they were <laughs> unbelievably. So I go to I go to the owners and I said we got to get into graphite. Right. They said what's graphite? And I said I don't know, but I do know if we don't get into graphite, we'll be out of business it's in the, three years. The future, yes. 
So anyway, uh, after the show, we got back. <clears throat> we had a meeting. And they said, this year is the first year we've ever made any money at, in, in Lima class. That was the first year I was there. And we're not going to squander it on some unknown material. And, uh, but me, I've, I, I mean, I picked up these, pen, these, these graphite rods. There was no way I wasn't going into graphite. So I went to the Seattle library and I told the woman there, I said, I want to see everything about graphite. So by the time we got rid of graphite and a pencil and graphite, it squirt in a lock and graphite, you know, and armatures and this type of carbon fiber. Oh, okay. One paragraph in a National Geographic that said Cortal of England invented a new high modulus, high strain fiber graphite in parentheses carbon fiber. That was everything April that was printed about graphite. That's it? That's it. That's it. That's That's it. Nothing else. So how where do you find where do you find out more about graphite to do anything? I mean, the people that supply us our class doesn't make graphite. Uh, uh, I don't even know where to go to get graphite. There's no internet. I figured the only thing, I was up in Kent, Washington. I felt the only thing I can do is so I went to Boeing's employee line. So I stood in Boeing's employee line, and everybody come out of the employee line and said, "You know anything about graphite?" Are you serious? You are fantastic. I've been, I was told that you are very much an enthusiastic go-getter, but this is this is way above me. I said, do you know anything about graphite? The next day I'm there and the guy says, wasn't you here yesterday? And I said, yeah, and I'll probably be here tomorrow. Until I one find of you somebody, heard yeah, graphite. somebody, somebody in Boeing knows something about graphite. Yeah. He said, well, go over to gate C. That's where the 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 uh, engineers come out of you probably be better off there. So I go over to gate C, and the fourth guy I talked to uh, was Harry Matheson, okay. one of four composites in the whole world, and that was ones that were that were metal engineers and had switched over to composites because that's how new. See, it's, it's so new. This, this is at the very beginning. I mean, this is. The reason that Fenwick had graphite was because all of a sudden the people that had invented graphite have graphite. What are we going to do with it now? So we got to find out what, what, here, here it is. It's an endless fibers running one direction and, and resin prefragged into it. Yeah. So that you can form it however you want to form it and then put it in an oven and bake it and you have a product. How did Fenwick get their hands on it? Well, because they were God. In fishing rods. Okay. Oh, let me tell you, Fenwick was, Fenwick was, if Fenwick wouldn't have self-destructed, they had still been the number one company in the world. They had everything going for them. Bigger than Lima Glass? Oh, they were much bigger than Lima Glass okay. at that time, yeah. They had some really, really smart, see Lima Glass's problem was, is a guy just get up and get going and really start to understand it, he'd leave. Oh. So it'd start up again, again, and get in and then they'd leave. Okay. So they never, you know, the the owners of Lima Glass never knew how to make a fish rod blank. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. I mean, uh, one of the, where, where New, New Zealand and Australia got their, their technology to make blanks, Lima Glass. You know? What and did they do? Fenwick, Don Green, Lima Glass. Gary Loomis, Lima, Lima Glass. Glass. 
So you guys so, all, but you guys all went off and started other major huge companies. Oh yeah. So what, I mean, what did they, obviously they were distraught when you left. So what? No, what, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think they were smart enough to be. So what? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So it was that, was that, you were telling me what the moment when you decided you were going to leave. Was that because of the staff? You want to skip the, uh, how we got into graphite and what happened or not? No, I do not want to skip it. Okay. Keep going. Okay. So, so anyway, I took him to, to dinner, bought him dessert, picked him up for breakfast, a human sponge. <laughs> he knew nothing about fishing, but like I said, he knew more about graphite than, than anybody else around. Yeah. And so I told him what I wanted to do and how I'd seen the Fenwick rods and this type of stuff, and they felt like unbelievably great fishing rods. And finally, I, I, we, we took a fiberglass mandrel, we taught some graphite from Boeing's, and we made our first graphite blank. It was terrible. Okay. <laughs> Why? Well, we had the wrong material to tape it. Uh, we'd had the wrong bake cycle, the wrong wall thickness to diameter. We had, you know, but we, we made a graphite blank. So I finally, I finally, we kind of, he, he kind of said, you know, I'm a material engineer, but what we really need is a structural designer engineer and a, and a computer designer engineer. And I feel we should take the small scale deflection computer program system that runs the stress analysis for the wings of the 747 that's wrote, that's wrote to seven degrees after seven degrees the wing breaks off. So we want to rewrite that from seven degrees to 360 degrees. That way there we can take a plank vertically and jerk it from vertical to past 15 degrees, uh, from horizontal to 15 degrees past vertical and stop at any place we want and get a readout every inch of the ID, the OD, the wall thickness, mosh, sear strength, crush strength, bending moment, word, break under how many pounds, and all this type of stuff. So I took some more people to dinner and lunch and breakfast and this type of stuff. We got a team of engineers together and we started writing the program and this type of stuff. And I finally got them to give me a $5,000 R&D. But that was after it was no, no, no. And I finally got this far along and I got $5,000. So we made our first graphite rod. And uh, I designed and patented the ferrule. And uh, it was a it was a good blank. See, the, let's just ferrule. back it up. I know I know what the ferrule is. Yeah. But I heard rumor of this uh, from Nicole. You designed the ferrule. Yeah. The ferrules that we have today on our rods, where the male and the female ferrule go together, that was you. Yeah, me. That, I mean, that's revolutionary. That changed everything. Well, it's it, twenty six things in the whole world have ever been patented under feraling, and I have two of the 26. That's amazing. And you were just going to skip, so you just like mentioned it nonchalant, like, yeah. oh yeah, I invented the feral. It's well, kind of a big deal. Well, it, it, it was a big deal then, because none of the ferals were, fa- well, not, not, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. So anyway, we finally got a contract for advanced composites, those three engineers that I put together, and if we could have... Uh, 27 models ready for the next AFMA show. Well, they, they stonewalled me for six months before I could even get the $5,000 and then, and this type of stuff. So that would have been the second AFMA show. So this next six months, 
I'd spend eight hours a day making fiberglass fishing rods. I'd spend another eight to ten hours a day uh, in the in the in the office running these computer pro. Uh, not me running them, but running these because they have to. You know, what do you want to see here? What do you want to see here? How should the action be? And this type of stuff so they could put the input. Then all of a sudden they said, now what we need to do is we need to have some straight tubes of different wall thickness and different diameters so that we can push directly down on them and they'll start to oval and then they'll oval and then we can analyze them and then we can extrapolate between these different size tubes and wall thicknesses and then we'll know how to make you know what they'll stand up in a in a computer program system mm. when we first got the program wrote we could make one out of wood titanium steel glass fiberglass anything but not graphite because we didn't know what graphite would do in the composite so first of all we have to get some composite straight tubes that was a that was i couldn't believe it i must have run 150 tubes never got them off the mandrel just have to cut them off the mandrel. Couldn't pull them. They just, they just bite right on the top of it. Have all kinds of release in it. No. Coefficiency of graphite is zero. So it just, it just, it, when you, when you put it onto the mandrel, it, it adhered to the mandrel, the full length of the mandrel. And I mean, you'd pull it down and it'd just crumble and crumble and crumble and crumble and crumble. And you'd get down about this far and it'd split lengthwise and then it would slide off. Oh, how frustrating. So anyway, after 150 of them, I finally figured how to put a release on the mandrel, mm. then put another release on that release, and then separate the two releases together and try to separate it off from the mandrel with the release. I just push, pull the two releases apart. But we'll get to that story in a minute. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we got the program wrote. We got them all done. I look up. When we kind of finished our rods, we was about a month out from the show now. And our rods weren't as good as the rods that I'd felt at Fenwick's. I've often thought then, if the rods would have only been as good as our rods would have been then, would have I been excited enough to do everything that I did to get this done or not? Well, here's, here's the thing. Wait is a deterrent to performance. Okay? If if you took a glass rod and a, and a graphite rod, mm-hmm. the graphite rod would be six times stiffer per weight than the glass rod, fiberglass rod. Yeah. So I can take one-sixth of this material and get the same stiffness. But the truth is, the glass is twice as strong as the graphite is. When I reduced the graphite by six times, I reduced the strengths by 12. Oh. So their rods that felt fantastic were all breaking. Oh, so they had a catastrophic break. So, and Fenwick was God. So now I'm going to a show and try to sell Lima Glass's rods when Fenwick can't build them? Try that one on for size. No, I'm fascinated to hear what you did. I'm just going to wait and let you tell me. <laughs> so, so anyway, I look up. I mean, our rods are great rods. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they were fantastic rods, but they weren't what I remembered when I picked those three up in that booth. Right. But they would have, and I'm telling you, 95 to 100 percent breakage. I, and I had people tell Gary, 
If Fenwick can't build them, who in the hell do you think you are? Mm-hmm. Well, Fenwick did it in the back room. And I was smart enough or dumb enough not to know I didn't know anything about it. And I got people that knew something about it. So ours were designed with 100% efficiency of the material. We could only make them three times lighter, but they were stronger than glass. So, I'm sitting here about a month out, ready to go to the show. Fenwick is flat on their face, and graphite is like this. And I've got to sell, I don't have to sell lima glass graphite over Fenwick. I have to sell graphite over fiberglass. So I built me a little 8-inch square box out of 1-eighth mahogany. And I drilled a hole and put a put an eye in it with a 5-pound hunk of lead in it, put a cable up through the box, and had the cables eyed up above it. And we was on a corner where there was a 10-foot aisle this way and a 10-foot aisle this way. And I'd stand out there, and I had a big bowl, and I had a bunch of, of signage sleeps. And I'd say... Here's a graphite, 96% graphite rod, designed and, and built correctly with a large-scale deflection computer program system. And graphite is a very, very, very good material to build fishing rods out of if it's designed and built correctly, this and this. Mm-hmm. If you would take the rod and lift the weight in the box, guess how much the weight is, we're going to give the rod the reel and the line away to the winner at the end of the show. Okay. Well, I usually had to say it about twice because they didn't realize it. And maybe with two hands, 80% of the men could get the weight off the ground. I mean, it took all the strength that they could do to lift that weight off the ground. And when it hit that box, that extra pound and a half of the box, just like it was glued to the floor. They'd put their name and address down and put on, put down the deal and everything else. Well, this was a five-day show at that time. So it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's Sunday about 2 o'clock. 824 people had, had did this test in five days. Big tall guy came in. So I gave him the speech. He flexed the rod like that and said, nice rod, Sonny. I said, no, no, you got to lift the weight in the, in the box. He says, I, I don't want to break your rod. I says, you won't break that rod. I said, that rod has been designed by a large scale to flew to program system and it'll, you know, and it'll lift eight and a half pounds vertically. He says, Sonny, do you know which way vertically is? I said, yeah, vertically is straight up and down. He says, that rod won't lift one pound vertically. I said, well, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. He said, well, I'll bet you five hundred bucks. So he started to lift it. Usually I had 10 or 15 or 20 people around every time that we went through this. I look up, we got 300 people. What? And it's almost closing time on a, on a Sunday. So you really every, had their yeah, attention. Yeah, everybody was Anyway, I looked up, it's Ted Williams, the baseball <gasps> player. No way! So here he's got both of his hands on it. And he turned around and I said, well, Ted, if you can't lift it, I'll lift it for you. <laughs> I was a little, I was a little... Chippery, I guess, at that time. <laughs> anyway, he turned around, he picks it up, it hits the bottom of the box, the box comes in. Nobody lifted the weight in the box off the floor. He set that down, he lifted it up again. He said, this is a hell of a rod. And he'd set it down, this is a hell of a rod. And he did that about three times. <laughs> Lima glasses breakage went away right there. Really? 
we sold 12 rods to him that year. And he was signed with boards or something like the Montgomery Ward. Huge deal. It's a huge deal. Huge deal. That was, uh, that was the beginning of, of graphite and how we got into graphite. So we went, uh, in the, in the next four years, we went from 420,000 gross sales to 3,800,000. Oh my goodness. And uh, everything was going fairly good. I was, I'd be here Monday, Tuesday morning, and get to Seattle by Tuesday afternoon to meet my secretary, find out how things went Monday and Tuesday. I'd work until seven, eight, nine o'clock at night on Friday, load up my car with blanks, bring them back here, get them all lined out so they'd start on a Monday morning into rods and this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And oh, I'd say, Four months before I quit, um, they hired both their sons, uh, Steve Posey and Tommy Posey. Tommy Posey I had up there and Steve Posey I had down here. And also during that last year, I had invented and patented a tapered graphite arrow shaft. See, what, what, what really happened when we had that um, large-scale deflection computer program system and... That was at a time Boeing's was in this kind of moving around system. At one time, they charged by the number of questions you ask. Well, what they found is they'd have like 24 receivers on that computer. People would get on them at 5 in the morning and set on them not ask any questions at all. So what they did is they changed it over from questions to time. How much time? So everybody would type into their computers and get a ticket tape and then when they finally got online they'd stick the ticket tape in and through it like that then it would go to the printing the printer and then the printer would come back to you so they gave about a six or an eight week free computer time to change your programs from questions to time and so all three of my engineers took their sabbatical leave during that time and rerun every tubular structure that mankind has ever thought of from straws to golf shafts to pole vault poles to arrows to golf you know we we just ran them all so we found some things that weren't good you know weren't good for graphite some things that was really good one of them was a tapered graphite arrow so so we 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 made that and uh, that particular year we went to the Las Vegas Opens, which is the largest archery's target, arrow, arrow target match in the United, in the world. Mm-hmm. About 900 shooters every year. And Easton Illumina had taken everything from first to 50th for all 15 years. I mean, Easton Aluminum owned the arrow market. So we took one shooter from Portland, Oregon, we went, we took second in the individuals by one point. Eastern aluminum almost pooped their pants. So the second year we went back, we took four shooters from Portland, Oregon. Again, second in the individuals by one point, but all four of our shooters were in the top eight. Largest score ever shot on a team event, highest score between first and second in the team events. And so we really had something going. Coming up, Gary talks about life after his departure from Lamaglass. 
Again, thank you to Woodard Wines for making this episode possible. Woodard ships to most states in the USA and is a working partner with vineyards around the world. This means that they are able to get their hands on even the rarest of wines and have them delivered to your door. Swing on by the next time you're in the Willamette Valley and check them out at www.woodardwines.com. I go back to Sherman's. And how long are you there for? And I'm there for really for 18 months. Okay. Probably a month after I was there, uh, I had heard through the grapevine that they wanted to, they never made another arrow after I left. And I knew I had that big order from Cabela's. And I know why they didn't have any, they never made another arrow because I had, in fishing rods, I had documented every single thing. Because mm-hmm. I was worried I might get killed. I mean, I'd go back and forth from Seattle every, every week. And so I thought, you know, we hadn't really finalized everything in the arrow, so there's nothing to write down until you really know your process. Right. One thing that was missing in the process, and that was the silicone tube that we baked them in. Okay. And the silicone tube that we baked them in, American silicone rubber, passed off so much silicone when it baked it that the silicone was so so deep in the surface of the arrow that we couldn't we couldn't glue on fletching. You glue the fletching on, shoot the ear on the fletching, you go like that. So we had to find a rubber that didn't bleed out so much that. And and I had just found it, we had just tested it, and nobody knew about it but me. And so about a month later, I heard they wanted to sell it because they never made another arrow. I says, I don't have a whole lot of choices, but I'm either going to get back in the fishing rod business or I'm going to get into the arrow business. And... At $72,000, I can get into the fishing rod business cheaper than I can get into the arrow rod business. Which one had less competition at the time? It's, it's really hard to say because Eastern Aluminum had a hold on, on the arrows. Okay. I mean, they would, they actually told their, the stores, you, if you if you don't sell Ben Pearson air bows, you could sell Hoyt. If you don't sell Hoyt, you could sell Bear. If you don't sell Bear, you could sell Jennings. If you don't sell, but what if you don't have any Eastern Aluminum arrows? If we find any graphite arrows in your shop, you'll get no more aluminum arrows. That's pretty tough for a store mm-hmm. to, to to buy graphite arrows at that particular beginning because it was so new. Right. And to give up the idea of never getting another Eastern aluminum arrow. Because they had no competition. There was none coming in from Europe or anything else at that time. They owned it. Where they lost it was when they started making baseball bats. Oh. They put so much time in baseball bats that left an opening in the arrows and other companies came in then and, and that's, so they, they lost, they lost that hold that they had on the arrow business. Got it. Makes sense. So, so anyway, I decided I was going to make a, another blank company and, and this type of stuff. And one day I'm talking to my boss who owns Sherman's machine shop. Right. And, uh, he said, you're not happy being a machinist anymore, are you? And I said, oh yeah, I, 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 I really do like it. He said, you'd rather be making fishing rods, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. And I said, well, I, I, I really do seem to have a love for it. He says, why don't you just, Build another company up. You know everything about it. Right. And I said, I, I don't have enough money backing to buy the machinery to do it. He says, buy the machinery? 
you're the best goddamn machinist I've ever had here. You build your own machinery. And I said, oh, yeah, but I don't have the equipment to build it. And he looks around and he says, we don't have enough equipment here to build your machinery? I said, well, yeah, you do, but I don't. He says, well, if I own it and I want to let you use it, I guess I can. Cool. But that's why, that's why you treat other people. I mean, I never, uh, he said he wanted to work on a Saturday. I was there. He said, he's, you know, if I made a machine, if it was a quarter inch bolt, I wrote it down. I never took one thing. I mean, you know, I mean. You were honest. Oh, very very just, honest. You know, perfect. And, and so anyway, so. I started building the equipment there, and we bought some other equipment, and then I built some more equipment there, and we started Loomis Composites. Okay, I didn't, I mean, I, obviously I know that you started Loomis, G. Loomis Fly Rods. I know that. But I didn't realize that you started so grassroots, making your own machinery. Yeah, well, so let's, let's go on to this <laughs> a little bit. You'll like this one. So anyway, we started Loomis Composites. We bought out blue Blue Marlin Rod Company that used to be Hornell's old factory. And we moved it up here and we set it up and I built some of the machinery that I had to have that they didn't have here. We assembled it over in the Quonset hut over here on the other side of Woodland. And we started Loomis Composites. Uh, a year into it, doing fine, everything was great. Selling blanks. A year into Loomis Composites, everything's going pretty good. All of a sudden I meet this guy from... Taiwan, Franklin Chang. Okay. And so we talk, and Franklin Chang says, I would like to do a joint, a joint venture with, with you in the United States in, in Taiwan, and we'd have that 50-50. One thing led to another, and I listened a little bit, and all of a sudden I get a call from the government, my government, saying that we've been doing too much foreign aid, we need to do more joint ventures with preferred nations. Taiwan is one of the preferred nations, and this type of stuff. So I thought, probably a good, good opportunity. So we were supposed to put up the technology and the design and this type of, and build the machinery, the design and build the machinery, and then they would do it, run it all, and it would be a 50-50 partnership. I asked him, I said, where did you get my name? He says, I asked five, no, ten. I asked ten people in the United States when I came, who has the most technology in graphite in the United States? And they said, you, ten out of ten. <laughs> so wow, that's a compliment. That was a compliment. I thought that, I, I thought that was a compliment. Big compliment. So, so I went back to my partners that had invested the money. We started building the machinery. Uh, in fact, they came over, the day they came over was the day the mountain erupted. And that was the first day we started Loomis Franklin Company. So anyway, we're in it a year. Uh, by the end of that year, I really find out that my partners are a bunch of lying, thieving, cheating people. And so I went back, told my wife, I said, Jesus, I don't know, I don't know what to do, but these guys are the people that I'm trusting, trusting and dealing with and this type of stuff. What she said. She said the only thing we can do is get out. So I, I told him. I says, uh, I want out. What year was this? This was eighty one. Eighty one, almost eighty two. And so, I, I sold my quarter of which is the the company in Thailand 
is the world's largest fishing rod company in the world. And I walked away from it. And, and Loomis Composites, because of them and this type of stuff, they finally went bankrupt about five, four or five years later. But I was totally out of that. And so then I sat down with my wife. This one you'll like. I sat down with my wife. We've been married 17 years now. I said, I know what I want to do the rest of my life. She says, what's that? I says, why don't you sit down? She says, no, I'm busy. What do you want to do? And I says, I want to sell everything that we've accumulated in 17 years of marriage, turn it into cash, and I build every piece of my machinery from the ground floor up, and you and I start over as partners. We have no other partners. She says, well, you're right. Let me sit down. (laughs) So she sat down, and I'd say within two hours, she decided what she was going to sell and what I was going to sell, and we sold everything besides a 1981 Chevy Chevette yeah. and turned it into cash. And right up here on the hill, you'll see a little green building. I saw that. Yeah. Okay, I started in that little green building, building all my machinery really? from the ground floor up. And I'd say about six months into it, my wife comes in and says, sit down, I'd like I have a talk with you. I said, oh, really, honey, I'm too busy. I'm, I'm on the next to the last machine. We have one more machine to build, and we'll be in business. And she said, well, that's when I want to talk to you about it. And I said, well, maybe tonight. She says, I think you better sit down. I said, oh, what do you want? Yeah. She said, well, I just want to let you know that you have a loving wife, two wonderful kids, and $32.10 left in the bank. Oh, I hope you were sitting I down. Says, I says, you're right. Let me sit down. So we sat down, and we discussed it, and what I was going to do was finish up that last machine, go back to work at Sherman's machine shop again. And within a year, I'd have uh, the, the money to build the last machine and would be working. So I go back to machining. About two days later, I get a call from Dennis Hybe. Who's Dennis Hybe? Remember Dennis Hybe. He worked for herders during herders. Okay. That was that was the biggest catalog at one time. Uh, when it was in its heyday. Anyway, he went to Cabela's. And he was the mastermind and brains behind Cabela's. He says, I, I want you to build our blanks for us this year. I said, Dennis, I'd really like to build your blanks for you this year. But I'm one machine short. And I'm going to go back to work at Sherman's. And I can build blanks for you next year. He said, no, no, Gary. I want you to build blanks for me this year. I says, Dennis, I'd like to, to build blanks for you this year, but I, I just, I'm not ready yet. He says, Gary, I need 280 blanks a day. Oh my God, not even close eight, to it. Yeah, for eight months out of the year, and I want you to build them. I said, Dennis, that is a hell of an order. But I don't have, the, he says, how much money do you need? I said, can I call you tomorrow? She says, yeah, so. Me and my wife sat down, we went back and forth, and this is 1982, and we came up with $50,000. Now, today it might not sound like a lot. Yeah. 1982, uh, the recession, and interest at 18%, that's a lot of money. Right. So I kind of figured if I just said, geez, I'm going to have to have $50,000, that's pretty shocking. But if I say, 
Dennis, are you sure you need blanks this year? Yes, I do. Well, I don't have all my machinery together, and I'm going to have to buy one of the machineries. In turn, I'm going to have to have $50,000 so that I can buy that machinery, get my mandrels, and get my stock, and get my working class up, if you want 280 blanks a day, by October 8th. Was that, now, what was that number? So he says, so you're telling me that if you had $50,000, that you could make me 280 blanks a day starting October 8th. I said, yeah. He says, what's your bank account number? Susie, Susie. <laughs> so I gave him the bank account number over the phone. Huh? Three days later, it's in the bank. and I didn't even sign a piece of paper. Really? Just a handshake. That's the relationship that I had with them over all the years. So now you're one machine away. Where are we at here? Well, we've got one machine away, and and they sent the money, and we designed and built all the equipment. And like I said, I, I supplied them the first date, and I supplied them blank for the next 24 years. And uh, picked up a lot of other dealers along the way. Um, and the company at this point is G. Loomis. Is G. Loomis. Okay, yes. so Lo- the other company, Loomis... Composites. Composites. It was sold and gone. Yeah, I just okay. i i sold my shares for ten thousand dollars, right? Which what? Everybody else got twenty five thousand. and just walked away. I I told them if you'll give them their money back, I'll leave with ten. And I and I walked away with with ten. And I took the ten. And that's what we started G Loomis with after we sold our land and our house and our trailers. And we started everything. G Loomis with. Ten grand and all the stuff that you sold. All the stuff we sold, yeah. And then, that, but then I came down with thirty-two dollars and ten cents, and luckily Cabela's was there, and he loaned me another fifty. So that fifty got us up and going. And with the order that we had, that many blanks, holy Jesus, we we just rolled. And so everything went really good there. And during that time, we built some industrial tubing. I think we built the tubes for Reagan Star Wars, Hubs Telescope. Uh, tubes and a couple of the other things. I can't remember who they was, but dealing with those engineers and those those uh, scientists were what really kind of put us up uh, above everybody else. Then all of a sudden, a new graphite came out. And like I told you at the very beginning, when we run all of those tubular things with a large-scale deflection computer program system, mm-hmm. at that time, a graphite golf shaft, I could not make a better graphite golf shaft out of graphite than they could, they could out of steel. Wow. I mean, there it was. Numbers are right there. Don't lie to you. And the reason is, steel is the given weight, is a given torque, and is a given stiffness. Okay. If I want less torque, I gotta put more steel in it to get less torque, which is going to add weight, is going to add stiffness. Mm-hmm. So my my design parameter in a steel golf shaft is this big. Now, in graphite, we put about 75% of the fibers plus or minus 25, uh, 75 degrees. This fights torque. This This fiber has to stretch. This fiber has to compress. The other way, it's just the opposite. Then you've got 25% of the material over the top of it for your stiffness. Mm-hmm. So I can drop the diameter. I can add more fibers in for the torque, less fibers in for the torque. Um, I can change modulus of my material. I can put a high modulus on the outside and a low modulus on the inside. Steel is, seven, is, is uh, 
17 million modules. Period. Doesn't matter. So here I've got, so I've got, I've got from 32 to 40, I got from 32 million to 46 million at that time, modulus, and could put it exactly where I wanted to get it tip, kick, anything I want. Mm -hmm. So when we came up with this next material, we ran it through that program again. It says, Gary, we can build a better graphite shaft today than the the steel shaft is. Not golfing, not playing golf. Mm I said, what do I got to do? Okay, I know nothing about it, so I guess I better learn something about it. So I went to Golfsmith, and I and I says, I want, what is the best graphite golf shaft that's out on the market today? It was called the Aldela Gold. So I bought two shafts. I bought a regular, and I bought a stiff Aldela. I made me a flex board. I put them on a flex board. The trouble was is the regular was stiffer than the stiff. And so seeing the stiff was the biggest seller, I used the stiff shaft. Mm-hmm. And and I checked, made two or three more machines. I'm a you know machine builder. Made two or three more machines. I could check the torque from the butt all the way to the tip. The less torque, the more straighter that ball is going to fly. Okay. So I, I made up one, and, and I got it the same stiffness and this type of stuff, and and figured out where the torque was and this type of stuff, and I made it up, and I gave it to, at that time it was my CEO. I gave it to him, and he took it out and played it. He says, Gary, this is the best shaft we ever hit. Oh, really? And I said, oh, really? <laughs> and and uh, he says, uh, I need a whole set. So I had to figure out the, the whole set and where the tapers were and everything else, and I made a set of it, and it went out, and it was absolutely, they just went nuts over it. So all of a sudden, they say, what do you, what do you do with your, your outlays? Because what was, what was done is that was a regular, that was a stiff, and this was an extra stiff. So if you got a light stiff, and a heavy regular, the regular could be stiffer than the, than the, than the, than the stiff. And that's how I got it. But mine was all like this. I never had any fallout. And the reason was is because the density that I could roll the blank, I could keep the outside diameter consistent, and I could keep it consistent. This is why they like my fly rods. When you buy a 10 foot 6 weight fly rod, you don't want a 10 foot 6 and a half, or a 10 foot 5 and 3 quarters. You want a 10 foot 6. Well, there's a couple, three things that happen when you get into those long rods. Number one is you cast them as, take a piece of PVC and lift the PVC up from the end. And as you lift it up like this, it'll bend, it'll bend, and all of a sudden that go off the ground and it'll start doing this. What's happening is, as soon as there's no torque in that PVC pipe, it wants to start to, to, to bend and it ovals like this. Fly rod does the same thing. Well, I was able in my in my scrim to put it in plus or minus forty five, and so mine casts so much straighter because my my tips don't do that. We learned that on the ping ping uh, rope up machine. They have a rope up machine that hits the ball, and we can check the vibration of the blank, and it takes uh, twenty thousand frames per second, so we can really see what's what's really happening. And so, anyway. I finally picked up Wood Brother and Titleist, and then all of a sudden they wanted me to set up Ping. So I called Ping and talked to Karsten, and Karsten said, well, if you'd like to come visit us, we'd be happy to 
to have you come. So I came and met him in the office, and was, their office was upstairs. And Carson turned to me and he says, "Well, Gary, he says uh, the reason that we had you, you, you know, we had you come was because we know your your reputation in the composite industry, and and uh, so we wanted to say you've done a fantastic job in fishing rods and this type of stuff. And so we thought it was we needed to honor you by inviting you to come because you didn't get a meeting with with Ping just like that. No." So I get going up the stairs and they said, well, our biggest problem is right now we're buying golf shafts from seven different graphite shaft manufacturers. Mm. And our problem isn't what the eighth one that we're going to take on is how to get rid of the other six of the seven that we've already got. Right. So I got up there and I talked to them for a while and I showed them some of this and why our blanks are so much more consistent, why they hit straighter and all of this type of stuff. And I says, you know, I have I have a way to help you out and get rid of, you know, six of the seven that you don't have, that you don't want. They said, how's that? Let's get rid of all seven of them, and I'll produce your shafts for you. <laughs> Tell me basically. Yeah. So within about a month and a half, we had all of their business. Seriously? ESPN wrote a half an hour article on TV that said, G. Loomis's graphite iron shafts are revolutioning golf faster than the metal wood driver. You know what the metal wood driver did to the persimmons driver? Not a true. Gone. <laughs> I mean, it just gone overnight. And so, anyway, at one time, we had 64% of the Turing players Jeez. playing our graphite iron shafts. Seriously. Never in the world, not even with Fruit of the Loom jockey shorts, they've ever had... You know, 64% of the players playing any shoe, shaft, ball, tee, hat, shirt, nobody. Okay, so now you've got G. Loomis. How many people are working for you at this point? One time we had about 300 people working for us. And how long did you have G. Loomis for? I sold it in 97. I had prostate cancer in 95. By 97, um, I had taken the cure. My PSA went back up. The doctor gave me 18 months to live. What went through your mind? Well, um, my mind was, I don't really care what they tell me. I'm not going to die. I mean, cancer, get out of my body. I don't have time for you. And I, I don't care what they say. I'm just... I don't have time for this, you know, and said in the, we had a double wide at that time. I said in the, in the toilet in the double wide and I just said, I, I'm, I don't, I'm just not going to happen. I just got too many things to do and too many people that I love and want to do things with. And so we decided we sold the stuff and we decided to go to Africa. So we, uh, this particular trip was to Zimbabwe. And if you look on the map and see Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe is Africa. Yeah. And we're five days from the closest road. It took five days to get the trucks in, ferry across two rivers, and get to where camp was, and get a native village to to mow down a place where we came in with a double double engine plane and, who and were you, lit. Who were you here with at the time? Uh, at that time, it was me and my wife and. 
my best buddy and his wife, John, John Webster. So we flew, we flew into, to Zambia and we was going to go lion hunting. I guess, I guess it was about three days, maybe four days before my birthday. And all of a sudden, I can't remember exactly the day. I have it on film. Uh, all of a sudden a truck comes in and there's about 20 Africans on the back of the truck and, and there's a missionary and he's driving the truck. And uh, I says, what's this? And my buddy, which is kind of a, he's got to be in the center of everything, he says, well, he says, I just hired a witch doctor to come check you over to see how your health is. Oh, he did. Yeah. Okay. And so it was, it was more of a spoof than anything, I, I believe. And, and, you know, and and so they started piling off the truck and everything else. And there was a witch doctor, three interns, 20 chanters and 20 beaters, drum beaters. God, that's they, a huge crew of people. Oh, yeah. You know how much that cost? I can't even imagine. $10. What? No way. And then, and then I, and then well, I'll tell you the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. So, so, so they got off and they started chanting shit. We got our cameras and everything else in the deal. Pretty soon this one little witch doctor, he's over there. He starts getting into this trance. And pretty soon his eyes roll back. He can't see anything but his irises. And he starts to sweat like you wouldn't believe. And the missionary said, uh, is it okay if he puts his hands on you? Well, in Africa, they can't put your hands on you because of AIDS. And so I said, hell yeah, maybe you'll give me AIDS and I'll have five years to live instead of 18 months. So anyway, he gets into this. I love your optimism. I mean, your optimism. I'm sorry. It's so, it's great. So he got on there and he started feeling around my head, my neck and my shoulders and my arms. I mean, he's, he's just out of it. Down my waist and my groin, my legs all the way down to my ankles and this type of stuff. And pretty soon the drummer started drumming and beater start, stopped beating and, and, uh, he started to come out of this trance that he was in. Pretty soon he came out of it and he looked just plain exhausted. Yeah. And he uh, turned and talked to the missionary. And the missionary turned to me and he said, Well, your, your witch doctor says you're in perfectly good health, but you have a sickness in your lower stomach. And I kind of laughed and I said, Who told him? He says, Who told him what? Who told him I had uncurable prostate cancer? He said, well, I, I don't know, and as far as I know, I'm the only one that can talk to him, you know. And he says, but he says, if you'll come to his hut tomorrow, he'll have a cure for you. <coughs> so my mother ought to be in here, and she'll verify everything I tell you. So anyway, the next day, I'll bring three clean, empty vessels. We, we brought bottles, okay. Coca-Cola bottles, wash them out brought the Coca-Cola bottles. And when we got to his village, I gotta tell you, April, his village looked, looked like a 1955 National Geographic. There was nothing in that village from the outside world. Nothing. Uh, clothes. Uh, I'd say half of them had some type of clothes on. You know, some of them had a pair of shorts and a shirt. A third of them had a shoe or maybe a pair of shoes or thongs or something. Mm-hmm. But other than that, there was no nothing. We went into his hut, and in his hut, he's got three clay vessels, 
around. You could see where the fire had been burning all night, and it was there. He took one and he poured it into one, and he scratched a Roman numeral one on it. Then he poured another one into another one, and he did a Roman numeral two. He poured another one into the other one, normal three. Then he took one, or three, I think it was, poured it back a little bit into it, and he gave it to one of his intern witch doctors to drink. He did it with two, and he did it with one. He says, now take those back, take a tablespoon of number one at 10 o'clock, take a tablespoon of number two at noon, and a tablespoon of number three at two o'clock, and when the first one's gone, throw, throw the other two away. So I asked the missionary what I could do for him, and he says, nothing. And I said, no, i got to do something for him. Right? He was up all night last night. He says, he, he, nothing. He, Look, do you think they need anything? And I said, I don't know, but I think i got to do something. He says, give him ten bucks. I said, ten bucks? He's five days from the closest road. What the hell are you going to do with ten dollars? He says, you, won't, uh, you just won't believe it, but they know what ten dollars is. And he'll trade it for maybe a couple pigs. And it'll be traded for two dozen chickens. Then it'll be traded for this. And it'll be traded for that. And sooner or later, a year or two years later, it'll get into the in, outside, inside world, and it'll be spent. How cool! So I did that, and we also bought the tribe six hundred pounds of rice. <laughs> so we're heading back to the, we're heading back to our camp. And I turned to the wife and I said, "What do you think?" And she said, well, I think that they was probably practicing medicine 6,000 years before we were. And I said, I was kind of thinking it too. You know, I said, I don't know anybody that's been checked over by a witch doctor. And I have absolutely nobody that in mind that has ever been to one of his office calls. And I don't know anybody that's ever took a, took a cure from a witch doctor. So we got back and I got a tablespoon and John had five minutes to ten, five minutes to twelve, five minutes to two, sixteen days. He'd get, get, get your teaspoon out. It's number two, number two. And it took me sixteen days. I finally took two of them and threw the other one away. Now we was there thirty-three days, I think, or thirty-four days. And when I came back, I figured my PSA would be about thirty. And and it was like fifteen when I left. And it had been doubling every month. So I get back and I go in and it's ten. Well I didn't say anything. That's so that's five below what it was. And 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 twenty below what they thought it was going to be. So 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 anyway I uh didn't say much to him. Didn't kind of strike a real bell. So the next week, next month I came three months. Three months later I came back and instead of being Ten, which it was, it was five. He says, I, "I've never, I've never seen this before." It's going down. I said, "Sit down, Doc. I got something to tell you." <laughs> so I sat down and I told him, told him the story. I said, "What do you think?" He says, "I think I wished I knew what was in those bottles." And the next, next three months later, I came back and it was like two, and it stayed between two and five for thirteen years. And now it's started to go back up again. Okay. When you were getting sick, you sold the company. Yeah. Did you ever get bitter about that? No. I was trying to have them move the correct direction for the bettering of the company. 
I shouldn't have done that because I didn't own the company. On the record now, he is no longer with two Lewis. Let's talk about who you are with. Yeah. What are you up to, you devil? <laughs> I, personally. No, let's say, what am I up to? I'm up to setting this company up to that the people that are going to run it and own it when I leave have a, a, a great life like I've had with what I've been able to do. And so um, I, I really want to guide them, but I want them to make their choices and to take it to whatever level that they want to take it to. I mean, I am 74, could have a year, could have 20 years. I don't know. You said that the doctor said that the cancer is back. It's back, but they also said, Gary, today with the technology that we have in prostate cancer, you'll die of something else other than prostate cancer. So this is yeah, great news. So yeah. when, right now... But, when, but, but I, I've got to keep... I've got to, you know, it's like this, like this, uh, Lupron shot that I took. I, I gotta tell you, I, if you get hot flashes, anything like I get them, I am so sorry. I think I have like 15 more years, but huh? <laughs> I think I have a few more years. Oh, <laughs> shit. I just start sweating. My shirt gets wet. I just t- have to start peeling my clothes off. Uh, See, I just thought you were trying to tell me something when you started getting naked. I didn't realize. I'm, I'm just kidding. No, no, I just, I just, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things out there to do and new things and exciting things. And, uh, you know, what I, what I really, what I really want to do is I want to do what Alex and Nicole and that are going to carry this thing on. I want to give them all of the help that I can give them right up to the, to the very end. And it ain't tomorrow, it ain't next year, it ain't the year after that. I don't know when it's going to be, but, uh, I want, I want them, I want them to lead. I don't want to lead anymore. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I want to, I'll give them all the good ideas, I'll, I'll be right there to, to deal, but I want them to do the leading because if I, if I lead the rest of my time, they're not going to have to know how to lead. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes.